you got to believe and keep going. I'm a product of that. And any entrepreneur that's been successful is a product of that. It's not like you have the idea, you map it out, and then all of a sudden it goes as planned. Hell no, absolute hell to the no. You gotta go all the way in, and you're gonna be naked, and you're gonna be afraid, and you can't sleep at night sometimes. There's gonna be a lot of different things, and then you get to the other side, and you realize you figured it out. You're listening to Secret Leaders from Infamous Media with me, Dan Murray-Serta. Welcome to the UK Startup Podcast, where you get insights into the lives of top entrepreneurs you just won't hear anywhere else. Today, I'm really excited to be bringing you a conversation with Steve Stout, the founder of a disruptive record label, United Masters. Their goal is to invert the power balance between record labels and artists by letting musicians keep the rights to their music. United Masters has seen huge growth and recently raised $50 million from an all-star trio, Apple, Google and Anderson Horowitz. Steve has loads of amazing stories. He's worked with massive names like Nas, Gwen Stefani and Will Smith. But I wanted to start at the beginning and hear about raking leaves and shoveling snow long before any schmoozing with A-list celebrities. I grew up in Queens Village, um, New York, man, a very small, gentrified area. And in that area, Queens Village, Right around it was uh, Hollis, Queens, Jamaica, Queens. And, you know, we all went to the same public middle school. Those areas shared the same sort of middle school and public school system. And, you know, I was born in 1970. And when I was 12 years old, this is 1982, and rap was really starting to emerge. The subculture was emerging. And a lot of it was happening in my area where I just happened to live. You know, that's where Run DMC's from, LL Cool J, Russell Simmons, the great early producers of hip hop, the whole thing. A lot of it came from from where we where I grew up at. Yeah, so kind of like a, a fortunate circumstance by complete coincidence, right? 100%, yeah. That I grew up in a neighborhood in which Russell Simmons, you know, hip hop was emerging in multiple neighborhoods, but the fact that we had that level of talent and that business acumen within a three-mile radius of my house, that was pretty fortunate. Yeah. So what was life like at home then? Immigrant parents from Trinidad, you know, work hard, really work hard. They instill those values in you your whole life. I ended up going to Catholic school at 15, but I've always been the person to have multiple odd jobs. I didn't care if it was singing Christmas carols for money or shoveling snow I'd pray for snow so I could make money or leaves, raking leaves. I mean, I was always trying to make my own money to try to take the pressure off my parents and falling in love with this art form called hip hop. That was really my life growing up. I remember the first time I heard Rap is the Light. And like every other kid during that time, you felt forced to remember it. It's like you felt like you had to remember hip hop, the hippity, the hippity, the hip hip hop, you don't stop. Like you just felt like um, you didn't know what it was, but it spoke to your soul. It was like a combination of things you learned in school, with, you know, with medley and, and rapping, like poems that they give you at school have melodies that you remember them by. And, and I remember distinctly hearing first Rap is a Light and then Sucker MCs, song called The Box. These songs were just like, as soon as I heard them, they, they, they moved my soul. 
There was no getting out of it. So what do you do about it? Got a windbreaker on and started breakdancing. (laughs) (laughs) You start doing everything. You start start buying the music. You start going to the block parties. You start finding where the music is from. You start to, you you watch the videos. You realize the the songs come with an outfit and a lifestyle. and, and, And you slowly start to get emerged into this thing. That's what it was. It felt like I was joining a, a team. I was joining a, a group of people who shared the same values. So my story goes, there's a, a long dash between me putting on a windbreaker and breakdancing and then like becoming a music producer. I've always been an entrepreneur and worked multiple jobs, created my own small businesses. I got into the mortgage business around 18, 19 years old as I was going to different colleges and dropping out. I went to five colleges and dropped out of five in two years. And I was doing, I'm not proud of that um, at all, but that's what I did. I was going to college and then, you know, doing mortgages and started making some money in mortgages. And what I did was you go out and I found somebody that was a producer who I met who had made early salt and pepper records, kid and play music, his name was Steve Kitt. Steve and I became partners and started a production company called Straight Up Funky. Terrible name, but that was the name of the company. And that's really how I got my start in the music business. So you started as a mortgage provi- uh, provider. How does, how, like, I'm curious about that. The, guy, the only person on my block who had a Mercedes was in the mortgage business. You know, I got into the business through him. And what it was about is people... You know, they couldn't just go to any bank and just, you know, request $300,000 or whatever it was to buy a house. They they needed assistance. And I learned enough of the business. We had a suite of lenders who would lend money to people. And I would go originate loans and get mortgages and, you know, get 1% and ball out with the money. (laughs) That's how I first got my thing going, man. Got it. Okay, so that obviously wasn't funky enough for you, so you became a music producer. Yeah, well, I'm always doing two or three different things, Dan. I mean, you know what it is. You're an entrepreneur. You always have another idea. You always want to make sure you you have you have to express yourself. These ideas are inside you. You want to get them out. So being a music producer wasn't first and foremost, but what I realized was that back in the day that if you were a producer and you didn't have any equipment, you would have to go borrow somebody's equipment and then they would take credit and put their name in it instead. So a lot of these guys who were great talented producers would go work in somebody else's studio because they didn't have their own equipment and then like have to give up the rights as a result of using somebody else's equipment. And a lot of guys got robbed that way. A lot of guys got robbed that way. Terrible, but it's true. So how did that how did that experience then create this like insight for you? What was your like you've seen the problem, so what do you do about it? I started buying equipment for the producers and, and became and becoming their partner. Like why do we you don't need to get robbed and, and, and you don't need those a lot of times people just don't have access to resources. Um, and especially in emerging subcultures, I don't care what it is. You look at any emerging subculture, 
you know, money is sort of the last thing that comes to it. And, and, and a lot of it is, it's good because of that. It stays true to its form for a long time. And then money gets in it and then commercializes it over time. But in the beginning, just getting money to, to be able to scale your operation or get more of what's working wasn't available to a lot of these guys, to most of them. And that's what started, you know, when you really think about it and you look at some of the great, look at 1988, Dan, pull up all of the great rap albums that came out in 1988 from N.W.A. to Big Daddy Kane to Rakim, Eric B., Slick Rick, Scarface and the Ghetto Boys, Salt and Pepper. You look at these albums and they're mostly on independent record labels. They're mostly on independent labels because... They was looking for resources, and a lot of these guys that were putting up the money weren't necessarily record company people. They were people who seen that there's this emerging subculture that's gaining traction, and you know, for ten, fifteen thousand dollars, you could sign these artists, and it may work. That's not what I did, but I'm just giving you the sign of the times. Yeah, so that's the background. That's how other people did it. So you obviously saw this as a as an opportunity and said, well, if I'm going to get into the game, I'm going to do it a different way. So what way was that back then? Invest in producers. Look, it's the only way I know. The only guy I met was a producer. I don't want to sound too profound here. <laughs> like I, I met a producer and I bought that producer equipment and we started a company. Um, but it was through meeting that producer and through those experiences is when I started to learn the business. Got it. So fast forward a little bit, you've started off like with an opportunity, like you say, you know, not being too profound. You've met the right person at the right time in your life and you've spotted an opportunity to partner. And obviously that takes us forward a little bit because, you know, you end up creating and producing albums for people like Gwen Stefani and Nas. So, you know, how did you get an opportunity to work with like them in particular? And what was it actually like? Well, from that point forward, I just started growing in the business, had some success. The first thing I got published, uh, released was the theme song to the Martin Lawrence show, um, the Martin Lawrence TV show. For those who have watched that show in syndication, that's my music. And um, as I started to grow my career, you know, opportunities came my way. And the next big, I'd say, milestone opportunity was... Uh, meeting these producers, the Trackmasters. They are one of the greatest production group in, in, in hip-hop, in the history of hip-hop music. And I met them and then managed them. And then, you know, with them under management, I found, I met Nas. And then I, I started to manage Nas. And then, like, once you start gaining momentum and you have heat, you know, heat attracts heat. People want to be around what's hot. And, you know, working with Nas and the Trackmasters and then LL Cool J and Foxy Brown, Mariah Carey, you know, Lauryn Hill and the Fugees, you start working with people. And then, then comes Will Smith and Men in Black and, you know, signing Will Smith. And I become an executive at Sony. And then Jimmy Iovine poaches me from Sony to Interscope. And I start working with Dr. Dre and Eminem. And then signing Enrique Iglesias, you know, and then working with Gwen Stefani. And, you know, it, it's like it, it just mushrooms. And that's what any entrepreneur wants to do. I, I mean, one of the things I tell all my entrepreneurs is like, either you're going forward 
or you're going backward. Because there's no thing is staying the same. If you think things are the same, that means you're going backwards and you just don't know how to express it. <laughs> yeah, and success is definitely compounding, right? So you look at the trajectory that you go on after after you start and some of the names that you just mentioned, and you can just see a perfect example of how things compound so fast. You have to be prepared for opportunity. I mean, you have to be put yourself in position and be prepared to take advantage of opportunity. It's not like I knew that. I just know I wasn't sleeping and I was afraid of failing. And I would just do anything that it required to stay on top of things and in front of things. Thinking about some of the star power that you just mentioned, like some of those people, do you ever like walk into a room and feel like an imposter? Did that ever like, did you ever sort of just feel completely out of place or were you always very comfortable no matter your surroundings? Yeah, the one that's, I was always comfortable with musicians. There were a few musicians I met that was really like, I was in awe of, that I was, I was a fan of. Whitney Houston being one of them, God bless. When I seen her, it would, you know, it was sort of startling. But not, not overall, not not generally. And I think a lot of it is like you, when you grow up with Nas or you know Jay Z, and you see the star power. You know, you work. You, look, I've, my whole career, I've been around Jay Z and Beyonce, Nas, you know, Dr. Dre. I mean, these guys have become global symbols of success. And they weren't that when I first met them. So you, you, act, you, you acclimate with it because you just are around it. But when I met people early on, like a Whitney Houston, I definitely was taken back. Sports stars, sometimes I'll feel like I'm an imposter a bit, but not really, not anymore. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm reflecting on how, I'm giving you that answer I would give you when I was 32 years old, 35 years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's what I'm asking for, right? At the time, obviously it's very different now. But, you know, you walk into a room and you see like a megastar that you are a fan of um, that you haven't come up with. I'm just wondering, you know, how that might affect you. You know, I had some great moments. It's a good question. And most people aren't honest about it. What was always interesting to me when, when I would be in that situation was when it was a star from another genre of music and getting into the conversation about the art form and explaining it and talking about it. And the best version of that was the first time I met Bono and started being around him. He was just so interested in what we were doing because he's such a culturally curious person that although I was blown away by who he was, he made me feel very much like I was the source of truth for him. You know, he was coming, you know, asking a lot of questions, digging in. And then like another one of those type of moments was when I was writing, you know, I wrote a book called The Tanning of America. And when I was writing the book, I got a chance to sit down at a restaurant with Paul McCartney, Sir Paul McCartney. And we started talking about the Beatles and back in the day and them playing in strip clubs and, 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 and just everything they had to do to come on. And he was telling me this story that they were so enamored with Motown that when the ships would come in, they'd go to the docks and they would give the, the guys who worked on the ship cigarettes. They'd be at the dock and give them cigarettes in exchange for, for the Motown music that they had. And they would take the Motown music and they'd play it. And they would play the shy lights and everything. And that's literally how they learned to hone their craft. In fact, when they came to America, 
they were nervous that they were going to get found out that they were copying Motown uh, albums and, and art, artists. And when he was telling me that story, as an example, I found myself, so it moved away, or removed the gap of like, oh my God, that's Paul McCartney. It was more like, this is a young hustler who's telling me his story on how he became and got on. And then once you get on, and you, it, it takes all of its uh, life of its own. But when somebody reduces the conversation to like, in my early beginnings, and they're honest with you, everyone becomes on the same level. Yeah, that's awesome. And it makes a lot of sense, right? As in everyone has to start from somewhere and the humble beginnings part is the thing that connects people, right? If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A.com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. I'm just wondering in terms of the, uh, you know, the stories you just, you just handed out a gem. Are there any others that really spring to mind that really struck you? Like the people have shared with you in the, in the past, that obviously are, uh, you know, safe for work, so to speak. Anybody who's listening to this podcast, if you have any interest in my career, I give it all away in the tanning of America. I mean, a great story. It's Jay-Z and myself and Bono and Roger Moore. <laughs> and we're sitting there. In Monaco, where, of course, a group like that you'd expect to meet and hang out. And I asked Roger Moore, I had to ask him this question. I said, in the 70s, who was the biggest star if you walked in a room, you or William Shatner? I mean, you got Star Trek, you got James Bond. Who's the biggest star? He says, fuck William Shatner. I had the apartment above him. (laughs) And I was just like, this guy. And then I looked at his wife's ring 
and it was so fucking big and blinged out. I'm like, this is hip hop. This is why this conversation works. This is exactly the same type of sentiment that I would have I would have said how I feel. This guy said, fuck William Shatner, and his wife had a big-ass blinged-out ring on. I'm like, man, Roger Moore's the man. Yeah, the gangster James Bond. Yes. Yeah, that's great. Okay, that's fair. All right, so changing tack a little bit then. Obviously, you know, it's not all smooth sailing as a producer. So, you know, would have been, have you had any like big fallings out with talent that you've been working with as a producer? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've had um, fallings out with talent. I don't, just in general, I mean, you work closely with people and over time the, the relationship gets tethered. I've had it happen to me and Nas, uh, who's one of my dearest friends to this day, you know. But we went through a period. Uh, 50 Cent, who's an artist that I signed, we we've certainly have gone through that publicly. <laughs> Look, everybody's fighting for the same ring. Everybody's fighting for success, to change their situation, to make the best music they can, to be respected. And sometimes there's conflicts with that. Everybody's type A personality is going for it. And that's cool. And when you take money and, and girls and, and all, all of the things that hip-hop music and status and East Coast and West Coast beef and bullshit, and you got to think about 1995, 1996, we're 25, 26 years old, and making millions of dollars with no instructions. Of course there's going to be falling outs. What's the what's the biggest falling out that you've had that you actually regret? No, no. I mean, it's it's a very public it's a very public fight in which I got jumped by Puffy and you know a few of his I don't know what they were hangovers guys with him bodyguards friends something in between yeah yeah whatever it was you know over creative differences that truly him and Nas had but as Nas's manager I was sort of the fall guy. Is there like a is there sort of a moment where you actually call up people that you have had beef with over time? Does this happen? Do people call you up? Do you call people up and say, "Hey, this shit happened ten years ago. That was kind of dumb. Should we talk about it? Should we be friends again? Like, do you want a partner on this?" No, 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 no. It just fizzles out. I never had that. It fizzles out. Fifty Cent and I had beef that was, you know, we didn't see eye to eye. I guess because I when I was supposed to sign him when he left after he got shot he got dropped from a record company and i was supposed to sign him at interscope when i was at interscope um, and i told him i would and i took his music to a few different people inside the company producers that we had and they didn't want to sign him because he was hot i mean there was a lot of street energy around him that nobody wanted to inherit and because I didn't get it done, you know, he felt like I failed him. The only producer I didn't bring it to was Dr. Dre, which was short-sighted on my part. I took it to all the guys who I thought who'd know of him, which were all the more the producers that we had that were, you know, based in the East Coast. And it made sense if you'd have brought it to Dr. Dre, who would have probably just heard him for his talent and not given a shit about inheriting problems. I guess that's interesting as well, though, because you'd think, like, knowing Dr. Dre's story, you would think that Dr. Dre would be super anti anyone that's hot, right? As in, you can see your common sense not bringing it to him because he was trying to avoid all of that as well. 
I didn't think of it. I, I mean, I just, just honestly didn't think of it. I'm, I didn't think of it. But, you know, I left the record business and then I went back into, um, I went to advertising, which people thought like, wow, you leaving the record business to go into advertising. And I went to the advertising business because I thought I could do more for the, adver- the record business outside the business than inside the business. And I went outside, started working at an agency as a partner. We sold that agency. And then I went and started translation. And we did things like the Jay-Z sneaker, the 50 Cent G-Unit sneaker, Pharrell ice cream sneaker. I'm loving it for McDonald's. And like really found a way to take the values of hip hop, things that I learned from the music business and apply it to the advertising business. And I'm, you know, super proud at what you know, what the company's become because we've made a, a big dent in the industry over the last 16 years. And we're the number one creative agency in the world when you start thinking about connecting with youth culture and understanding new and emerging audiences. We are the, the leader in that. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's interesting because you've even glossed over the fact that you were an executive producer of the 8 Mile film as well. So how did you get involved in that? I, I got involved in it because it, I had the idea. The idea was trying to make another Saturday Night Fever. You know, Saturday Night Fever was how many times can you get to, you know, John Travolta get to the club? I mean, and look, by the way, having the idea and then speaking to my partner, Jimmy Iovine, was how we really got to the idea. Because, you know, what I wanted to do was make something that felt like every time you've seen a movie like Boys in the Hood, or whatever, like the, the guy would just die. The aspiring artist would die. Like we knew that story. And I felt like there was another story to be told where the person ascends, they, it becomes a successful outcome. And that, that was the thinking, and then like Jimmy and I spoke about it. And then Jimmy brought up the Saturday Night Fever part, like how it was like John Travolta, and he would keep trying to get to the club and get to the club and dance. And it was literally those sparks of an idea that we took to, I took it to Brian Grazer at Imagine Films, and that's how the whole thing started. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. So was it kind of like, was it obvious that Eminem had the right story, like, already? Because I'm guessing, like, you know, there was so much authenticity. That was one of the craziest things, was I had the idea, and I would go to Brian and spend time with him, and he thought it was a good storyline, but that... He wanted to hire Fred Durst to play that character. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about, bro? When you're merging two worlds together, especially back then, a lot of things like that take place where people say shit that don't make no sense. Like, oh, I got it. We're going to use a rap. Why don't we go get a studio musician and have him do the rhymes? Like, a studio musician can't do the rhymes, man. You need to hire the real rapper. You know, You need to hire the person. You can't, like have somebody go fake rap. That's how it sounds stupid. People didn't know, like, it would be blasphemous to have, you know, Fred Durst play a rapper or or put somebody who wasn't really a, a rapper or a musician, but have them do rap, raps because the words rhyme and it's fun. They would do that, but they didn't even realize that there was an authenticity that was respected because it's like anything else. When people come to London... You're a visitor. You can't go to London and go see two, three things and then say, oh, I see London, man. You know, you can't go to the Eiffel Tower and say you've been to Paris. I mean, you got you to gotta understand 
those streets. You got to understand what moves the people. You got to understand much more nuance that drives the culture. And a lot of times people just visit things, Dan. They don't understand what drives the culture. They don't care. They just want to skim the top. And that a lot of that happens in the music business, the advertising business, many industries where you get executives that they just want to stick their toe in the water and get the sauce, not necessarily do the work and understand and unpack what moves the culture. Gathering his learnings from all these experiences together, Steve decided to fix the music industry by founding United Masters, a record label that inverts the usual model by letting artists keep the rights to their music and earn a greater share of the profits as a result. What is the one sentence pitch for United Masters then? How do you describe it to the layman? A record company in your pocket. Love it. Okay. Most consumers that consume music don't really get what the problems are with the music industry at all. We just sort of hear about it on the, on the vine. So as someone with an exceptional amount of experience in the industry, what are you changing? And what were you part of as well? Were you part of the problem without even knowing it? So the biggest issue is when I was coming up in the business, you had to find a record company before you found an audience. So in order to know if your music was being heard or people thought you were talented, you had to get to a record company first and foremost. And then they put you in front of an audience. MTV, radio, what have you, BBC, whatever it may be. Now, you find an audience before you find a record company. So why should they own your name, your likeness, your images? This is what Prince was talking about years ago, but people wrote him off. He, he, he changed his name to the artist formerly known as Prince and wrote Slave on his face because he realized that in the music business, because the record companies had a monopoly and you needed them to find an audience, they would own your rights, image, and likeness in perpetuity and then rent it to you at a percentage. And that is the same business model as sharecropping, very similar to slavery. And presumably, like, as a producer... I mean, this is the model, if you've been on the production side, this is the model that you inherited and ran for so many years, which is why you are so personally close to the problem in terms of being able to identify how to solve it, right? Well, yeah. I understand if you are an executive and you got a, just got a job, you didn't invent the business model. If you're an artist and you're trying to feed your family and you sign a deal like that, I get it. My job is to create an option that you don't have to do that, right? I do think it's wrong and that they should be modified greatly as a result of it. There's a lot of artists who made work that we love to this day that are broke, broke. And they're broke because the thing that they've done the best, at, the thing that they only know how to do the best, they sold at the lowest price and they don't own it anymore. It's like very famously TLC, right? TLC were the biggest girl group in the world and they were broke. I mean, it was designed that way, unfortunately that if you're talented, we give you this money and we buy your name and image and likeness and we pay you a percentage of it, then they blame you for you know spending too much money and saying that you're not fiscally responsible and all kinds of crazy shit. And some of that may be true, but if I had all my fucking money, you know, if this thing was, it's supposed to be, you know, the value creator is supposed to retain most of the value. That's what I believe. 
You do this podcast, this is your show. If whatever success of this show went to somebody else, I'd be pretty pissed at you, Dan. Steve wants to disrupt the entire record label ecosystem and place, as he puts it, a record label in your pocket. He's not alone in this vision and recently raised $50 million in funding from Apple, Google, and Anderson Horowitz. I asked Steve how he managed to pull that off. You know what I don't want? I'm not going to come on this show and I want anybody to take away there's a shortcut or painting a a frothy photo of, of things. And valuations and all that shit make things seem like that. Like, we're figuring it out. And, you know, people believe in my vision as an entrepreneur, and that's my job. As an entrepreneur, your job is to have an idea, build a vision, build out the vision so that it's clear, and that people can buy into it. Employees and outside partners, strategic partners, bankers, whatever it may be. You have to get people aligned around your vision. That's how you get people working every single day. If you are inventing a new idea, it's an idea that hasn't been around before. So to get people to see it requires a lot of work. You see it because you're the passionate visionary. How do you get somebody who just came from another job to come and leave that job for the uncertainty that you're gonna build an idea that doesn't exist? That's really tough. And when people say entrepreneur and they start throwing around all these shiny numbers and shit, it fucks everything up because it makes it feel easier and brighter and better than it really is. It's hard. If everybody could see it, it wouldn't be a new idea. And because everybody can't see it, it's hard to get them to understand to see it. I think the most exciting part of it is, well, A, there's validation. This is something. This is a real idea. This is this is certainly something that other that's going to help other entrepreneurs who are building similar ideas get funding because Apple validated, you know, me. And I'm not worried about that. I think it's this is it's growing so fast. Independent music, it's so big that I think there's a lot of opportunity there. So I'm less concerned about like, you know, who's copying who and who had the idea first and all that bullshit. And secondly, yeah, it's it gives us a strategic partnership. Really on the back end, when you think about the tech side of it, uh, as we deliver music to them, being tied into them this close allows us technically to be better at what we do because of this partnership. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's actually really interesting as well, having both Apple and Google as investors. So was there any tension bringing both to the table or does it all like get kept pretty separate? I'm a bump on, to them, I'm a bump on an elephant's ass. <laughs> you know, small I am, they have much, whatever they have or don't have is, is I'm not even on the radar screen. So what is the like current plan then? So, you know, you've you've gone for your, I guess, obviously the, the seed money, the startup money is to identify a problem and start doing something about it. You've obviously executed phenomenally well up until the point of getting to this latest Apple round of funding. So what next? What was the pitch there? And what are you foreseeing for the next five years? Acquire the best talent in the world, buy companies, acquire the best talent in the world, build a great executive team, Build a great company. Uh, If I I do this right, I want to build Def Jam of independent music. That's what I want to do. 
So basically, you know, it is this like end-to-end, like vertically integrated, essentially, record company, right? Where the argument to your competitors, the argument to other artists, other brilliant artists on record labels becomes just such a no-brainer, right? It's like you can join your record company, you can get data, you can get more money, and you can reach your own customers. So at some point, it just becomes like a completely absurd decision not to choose to go with you. If you, now, that means I'm bringing you into the next pitch. <laughs> you talking that type of shit. Yeah, well, I feel like I get it. You certainly do. So what, what is your business model then? So like, obviously, you know, it's like the 90-10 rule doesn't work on the record company uh, model for the artist. What is your what is your business model? How does yours work? What's your pitch, like, ultimately? Look, the way technology works is the person who provides the value the most value should get the most value, receive the most value. That's the way it should work with the customer getting the best price. So if you're removing the friction of the middleman, then the person who provides the most value should be receiving it. Whether it's e-commerce, direct-to-consumer businesses, whatever it may be, that's the way it should work. And we're betting that we are going to provide, the artist is providing the most value, they need to get their music seamlessly and frictionlessly to TikTok, Apple, Spotify, Tidal, Amazon, and 120 other different distribution companies around the world. And that's not what they should be spending their time trying to figure out. That's where we come in. I also believe that the artists need a chief technology officer. How would you, you're sitting there right now and an artist is saying, oh shit, NFTs, what the fuck am I gonna do with that? Well, you can't go to the same manager that you had 400 years. I mean, he's not going to know. That's not what he does, right? So, like, you need to have a technical support and back end in your life. And I envision us becoming an end-to-end solution. And as technology keeps opening up more opportunities, we will continue to be on that journey with the artists. Yeah, it makes so much sense when you, when you lay it out like that. I mean, just coming towards the end, Steve, because I know obviously busy guy and got a big company to run, so I don't want to take up too much time, but I do have a couple of questions. What has been the biggest challenge for you getting uh, United Masters off the ground? Like, have there been any big holy fuck moments we're not going to make it? Have there been anything that you can recall that we can learn from? Oh, yeah, man. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. You know, Chance the Rapper, when he was like in his prime after releasing his last album, Coloring Book, was going to release his next album and become an equity holder in in United Masters, a partner. And um, we were going to release his music. And I just thought, like, him him winning the Grammy would be just a great story that the world would appreciate that, you know, this man put the stake in the ground for independence and, you know, we are his partner in you know, music distribution, blah, 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 blah. And his manager, who, they're in the middle of a lawsuit right now, so, you know, did some bullshit and fucked everything up. And I was working on it for a year. And it did nothing more, but it was frustrating and time-consuming. And I thought, like, if he doesn't believe in it, what does that say about us? But then when I got to it, it wasn't chance. Of course, he believed in it. It was just the manager's idiot, shallow ego, you know? <laughs> like, scared that I was around his artist or whatever it was, which is just dumb and stupid. I don't want to manage anybody. But things like that happened, or 
you know, one of my lead engineers had a medical situation, you know, you know, has a has a history of a mental illness and like in the middle of building the product broke down him mentally and like and he had the keys. <laughs> you know what? I have had exactly, exactly the same thing happen to me. Exactly that with my lead developer before. So I literally exactly get it. It's fucking stressful. You don't even have anybody to tell. There's not, yeah, there's nobody even to talk to about it. Yeah, and you feel pretty locked out. Bro, you feel naked and ashamed. <laughs> yeah, I think of all of my, I think of all of my most stressful moments, that was quite possibly number one, because you just don't know how to unfuck that. Just patience, kind of. You believe in yourself, you got a good idea, and you stick to the course, you know? I, tell, I used to tell my guys when we first started the company, I said, how do you think the settlers, when they came to America, knew as they started going west to California? How did they know during the gold rush, as they were going west, that the Mississippi River wasn't the Pacific Ocean? How did they, not, how did they know as we go west, this is, this is a body of water. This is not the end. How did they know that? I mean, you don't have to answer the question. They just kept on going. And like, I really believe that. Like, there's no, I don't give a fuck if it's a sports game, whatever it is. That whole idea, it ain't over till a fat lady sings is a real thing, man. It's not over. You can't just like, you got to keep going. You got to believe and keep going. And I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a product of that. And any entrepreneur that's been successful that I've known of is a product of that. It's not like you have the idea you map it out, and then all of a sudden it goes as planned. Man, hell no. Absolute hell to the no. <laughs> you got to go all the way in, and you got to unearth some shit, and you're going to be naked, and you're going to be afraid, and you can't sleep at night sometimes. Um, it's going to be a lot of different things. And then, you know, you get to the other side, and you realize you figured it out. And there's a lot that you figure out while you're building it. You are learning to fly the plane and landed at the same time. Okay, so what would you say, like in your entrepreneurial career, what has been your darkest day? What has been your most challenging moment? I would say my darkest day as an entrepreneur was in building United Masters, I went through a round of bad hires, really, really bad hires. And when you make bad hires or bad hire in a senior leadership position, it begets more bad hires because all they do is hire bad people. They start bringing up more bad people, and now I have a whole team of bums. Um, I have a whole team of average people working on my shit, and the truth of the matter is, they're doing it because we're well-funded, they're doing it because we got money, but they're not doing it because they're passionate and believe in the journey. And um, dismantling that and not losing the company in the process was extremely difficult. Amazing. Such a good lesson there as well. Thank you. Okay, so this is the final question. It's a quickie, which is, uh, what's your number one piece of advice for listeners that want to follow in an entrepreneurial footstep? They want to make a real dent in the world like you're doing. Don't listen to the noise. Be irrational with your pursuit of perfection. Be irrational with your belief in your idea. And don't allow people to tell you that you can't do it. They're actually just putting their limitations on themselves on you. 
They can't do it. It has nothing to do with you. And surround yourself with people who support you, who believe in you, and that keep it honest with you. I've always said, man, if you have a rational idea and you know it's rational and you bring it to people and they say it's not going to work, you probably have a genius idea. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. What you find is that the things that you did to run the company, say a year ago, two years ago, they just don't feel quite like they're working anymore. Like, oh, a year ago, I used to say this and magical things would happen. And now I say this and it's like nothing happens anymore. What's going on? What's wrong? I thought I said the magic words. Turns out those magic words don't work anymore. And that's really the act of growing. First of all, realizing that that's happening and realize that you have to learn to adapt. That was Jeff Lawson, the co-founder and CEO of Twilio, the biggest company we've had on the show so far. It's worth $65 billion. How do you even build a company like that? And how can you harness the real power of software engineers? Tune in next week or you'll miss out. This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Lower Street Media.